Today on Keep Classical Weird, we speak with good friend of the show, Ryan Zwallen. Longtime listeners of the show will remember him as the oboe representative from our Instrumental Personalities episode way back when. Now that you've listened back, do you agree with everybody else's um, assessment of oboists? Oh, definitely. I think I said <laughs> most of it before anyone else did. <laughs> good. Excellent. We're very, we're very self-aware of our <laughs> neurotic tendencies. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 64 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and I am so excited for this particular episode today. Even if you're a classical musician, and even if you're an orchestral musician, if you don't play a double reed instrument, it's likely you don't have a really comprehensive idea of exactly how these lovely, albeit neurotic folks, make their reeds. I asked Ryan for a really monumental task, which was to discuss his process of reed making over an audio format. I learned so much and was completely enthralled from beginning to end of the process. This episode ended up dropping on September 2nd, and I would like to formally request that every September 2nd from here on out should be Double Read Appreciation Day. You'll learn why very soon. Enjoy this interview I had with Ryan. The oboe is a double reed instrument, so... So let's start with that, with those kind of brass tacks. What's, let's define a double reed. So um, I would start that the oboe is a woodwind instrument. And within the woodwind family, which is kind of weird, you've got the flute, which isn't, I mean, some are wood, but most of them today are made out of metal of some kind. Um, you've got single reed instruments like the clarinet and the saxophone. Saxophone is not wood at all. Uh, and then you've got the double reed instruments, the oboe and the bassoon. And we have an entire process to make our double reeds, but it's basically two pieces of wood that are tied together that then vibrate okay. against each other. And when you so each two other pieces of wood, what kind of what kind of wood are we talking? Like, do you go out in the back and say? Arundo Donuts. I do. Say it again. If you want the Latin name. Arundo Donuts. Arundo Donuts. I might be saying it wrong. Yeah, I might be saying it wrong. I don't take that. Okay, so for those of us non-Latin scholars, (laughs) what is that? It, um... I think most simply, it looks like a bamboo. Um, It's cane... Uh, I believe it was originally from the Middle East. Um, Most of the cane that is used and grown today um, comes from southern France. There's cane from Turkey, though. There's cane in South America. There's cane actually from California because it kind of has that Mediterranean climate as well. But I would say um, probably at least 80% of the cane used today comes from like the so far all, region all, of France. Basically all southern France. Wow. Yeah. Well, sure. Well, I guess if you're, for people in the if United you were States. a French artist, that would make it a domestic product. Okay. Understood. Um, and you, exactly. when did you start making your own reads? <laughs> 
I don't think I really started making my own reads hmm. until I was an undergraduate in college. Um, I have definitely taught middle school and high school students to make their own reads or at least to start adjusting their reads. Um, I've, with different friends and colleagues, we've had different, you know, summer camps for students um, in the different places I've lived. And um, read making is something we always touch on. Um, I think I was first, I was probably um, a junior or senior in high school when um, my teacher started talking to me more about read making. Um, but in high school, I never actually made oh, my wow. own reads. Do you remember the first Or read even adjusted made? them. <laughs> no, thank you. You blocked it, wiped it from your memory? <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, at this point, having played the oboe for, geez, 30-some years, I've probably made, and I'm not kidding, well over 100,000 reads. <laughs> I might be really wrong on that number, um, but I make so many reads. Well, because I've made reads for myself, and when you're first starting to make reads, you're horrible at it. I mean, I've been making reads for, I don't know, 20-some years, and I still feel horrible at it sometimes. Um, but we make so many reads all the time. And then I make reads for students, and I make reads for students at camps. And I have okay, made so, let's, so many uh, reads. You know, I'm a string player. <laughs> I don't make any part of my instrument. I don't make my own rosin. I don't make my own strings. I just purchase them. <laughs> Why does it make sense for, for oboists to make their own reeds? I think on the most basic level, they're hard to manufacture or like mass produce. A lot of that comes down to the, how thin they are like the wood is um that is used to make the reed but it's also everybody's mouth is a little bit different as far as the way their teeth are formed and their lips are um we all play on different instruments and all of our instruments are made of wood so it's you know it's it's organic you know there's like something different about every single one and so i think it's those factors that um sort of lead to how we can personalize our own individual read for our physical ability and our instrument. I didn't think about that. It's yeah, how we are. So it makes sense to make them all as custom made as possible. So you would make reads for yourself slightly differently than you would for say your students or if somebody else had your instrument, they would make their reads differently. Definitely. I, my student reads tend to be um, a little bit lighter. I scrape a little bit more off of it. So it's a little more um, free blowing. Um, for my students, I don't have to have quite the same level of detail. They don't have to have quite the refinement that I need um, as a professional musician in a professional setting. Um, <laughs> that's not to say that I make my kids bad reads, but they don't have to be at the same level as mine because um, they just need to, it's function more than anything. How for a long does a read they just last need something that on average once you make it? That can vary um, because there are different densities in cane. 
For the cane that I use, it's pretty middle of the road density and hardness. Before the pandemic, when I was like playing full time um, as a freelance musician in the San Francisco Bay Area, I would say a read might last a week. And the thing that we do to sort of balance that is we have numerous reads in our case. So I might have a read that I made and I'm just in love with how it feels and how it sounds. And so I might not play very many rehearsals on that to try to get that read to last until the performance. So I might have reads that function well and play well, but I don't really think it's quite ready so for have, a performance. Like, for and so I might use those for rehearsals. That you use, that you can go through to save like the really golden ones. Oh, my... Yes. <laughs> my There are different approaches to read making. Um, my approach, or at least what I was taught, was kind of like you finish a read a day. Now, I don't do that anymore. But you have reads in like a three-day process. You get to the point where, you know, you've got the read tied on the staple. Yeah. And we'll get to some of these details, I guess, next. <laughs> but, um and it's tied on and it looks like a reed, but it's called a blank because you haven't really scraped anything on it. Like there's still the cane bark on there. You have some people that get to that point and they will finish the reed right there. The approach that I was always taught, um, I, I always call it a slightly more zen approach because you've manipulated this tube of cane into an oboe reed. So we want to let it rest and we want the, the cane, the wood to dry out. And then the next day, you would scrape on it and clip it open, but you're only scraping like a quarter maybe of what you would normally, you know, of what the finished street would be. And then you let it dry out again and you just kind of let it to let it reacclimate to its situation. And then the third day is usually more of a finishing day where you're doing all of the refinement. Um, and, and that really can last honestly, a few more days where you're making little adjustments because it's a little super thin piece of organic material. So it changes over time. You know, you can play on it for a day, whether I'm just practicing or in a rehearsal, and it's going to feel different the next day. So, you know, that fourth day, you might tweak okay. it a little bit more. But at wow. that point, it's really, really small little wow. changes. Yeah, it sounds so specific and so temperamental. Isn't it horrible? Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's the general process. So like, all right, you get your you get your materials together. How do you can you walk us through how to make how to make a read? So by the time this episode is over, we'll all know how to make yes, it. I will walk you through. <laughs> and if you know how to make a noble read, you can start sending them to me. <laughs> There are a number of steps. Um, so I buy tubes of cane. They're usually probably in the range of four to six or seven inches long. So they have been sort of cut down because cane, it's like bamboo, you know, it's like, I don't know, 12 or 14 feet high. So I get my tube cane is what we call it. And you can usually buy do it just, by do you just order the it half online? pound or the pound or so. Um, I do. I actually have, there are a number of places um, that you can, oboe shops and woodwind shops that sell cane. Um, I have a friend who has a company out of DC called Capital Cane. And he was really great about finding um, 
smaller batch um, growers and he just has a lot of variety and he would do these little sample packs so you could actually try all this different kind of cane which I did for like a year until I fell into the brand that I have now that just works for me really well. (laughs) Yeah, so I buy my tube cane and then um, each little tube, I take this kind of long, thin metal rod that has three little blades on the bottom. And what I do is I set that in each tube and then I kind of hammer that down. (laughs) That splits a tube into three pieces of cane that I am then going to continue to process. So at that point, they're all different lengths. And on my gouging machine, which I'll get to what that is more specifically in a minute, I have a guillotine. So I get to set the cane in this little I'm holder sorry to, and then I get I'm to, sorry to chop interrupt off you and because your gestures um, look so before I, Like It looks like, like I'm able to chop it. And I'm able to take my kid. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's too bad this isn't a video. I just right? don't know if that it came through enough in your voice, but your gestures were so demonstrative. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Before I chop it, um, I am looking for the straightest part of the cane because when I'm I want the straightest piece that I can find because cane, again, it's organic. So it can it can curve in so many different ways. <laughs> so I'm looking for the straightest piece that is going to most successfully make it through this whole process and then hopefully become a reed. So I have guillotined all of this cane now and I've got the right length for these. Now we have to go through this process of gouging out the middle so it gets as thin as we need it for the next steps. Some people have, uh, there are a few different kinds of pre-gougers is what we call them. There are some you just sort of push it through this little trough through a blade and it kind of thins it out a little bit. I have this this pre-gouger that um, I set it in a trough and I crank it through um, two different blades. It gets it really pretty thin. And the reason I have that and I spent a little bit more money on that is because then there's less wear and tear on my gouging machine. Um, I'm, and we I'm, can get I'm to tallying up how, many how much all of these cost shortly. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> so After the pre-gouger, then I will put it in my gouging machine. And I don't think I can do justice to describe what these look like. But the cane sits in another trough, and there's another blade that gouges it even thinner. Um, And I use these micrometers to measure. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like, so they look like calipers for very, very delicate things. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And cane is very, very delicate. (laughs) So then I've gouged it to have a very small range. I really like the cane that I use. And at this point, I have not discarded too much. But I will say, how many do I normally discard at this point? I do this in batches. So I'll probably do like 10 tubes of cane through this process that I've talked about so far, getting it gouged, I would say if I did 10 tubes, that would be about 30 pieces of cane. At this point, and with my cane and my process, I might have lost five pieces of cane. 
Um, it does vary because when you say lost, it's an organic it plant, like <laughs> you know. It either gouged too thin because it was too soft of cane. Um, it might have been I had a few pieces that were just too curved that weren't going to make it through the gouging process. Sometimes you will get some that is just a little harder or more brittle. Um, and so it can crack sometimes during this process. There are people have different ways of sort of determining, you know, good pieces of cane. I will make a read on almost anything that makes it through this process that is, you know, straight enough to go through the pre-gouger and the gouging machine. And is that the right thickness or thinness? I will try to make a read on almost anything. Some ah, people are okay. a lot more. But you're concerning. like, made it through, made it through the first round. Like, go for it. It made it through. And and honestly, for me, you know, it might a piece of cane that somebody may have discarded. I might be able to make a really great student read off of it. So I'm fine with that. Or I might be able to make a read that I can practice on that I only have to hear in my little studio of my own. So at that point, we have this curved rectangular piece of cane that is very thin. At that point, I usually stack them kind of in a Jenga type <laughs> tower um, and I let them dry. And then what I'll do at this point is um, I'll take a couple anywhere from, depending on how many reads I need to make at any given moment or day or week, I will usually take anywhere from two to four pieces of gouged cane. I will soak them up. I should have said, you have to soak all of this cane so it's wet when you're going through most of the process that I've discussed. Um, it's constantly soaking so would, cane and then drying it and then the soaking it, it and then drying it. pliable and flexible and then... It makes it more pliable um, and it also... Um, expands the cane oh, just okay. a little bit like all of the fibers because there's like moisture in there okay so now <laughs> we're back to um gouged cane that i have soaking and at this point i have to fold it in half i will use a razor blade or a knife so if i have the piece of cane and it's kind of like horizontal you have to tell me if i'm explaining this clearly or not and it's horizontal i will put my hmm. knife or a razor blade perpendicular to that to fold it in half it's like so i'm not folding it in half lengthways I'm folding it in half the other way so that right there is what makes honestly is what makes the double read because that is now two pieces. I mean, it's one piece, but it's two pieces that are folded in half. And when you tie those on and clip it open, then you have two pieces that are tied together. Ooh. So it starts as one and then it becomes two. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but we're not there yet. <laughs> so I've folded the piece of cane in half and now I put it on um, what's called a shaper tip. There are a lot of different shapes, and it's funny how different they can be for as small as the measurement differences can be. Um, but we have this shaper tip. I don't know how to describe it. It's a little bit wider at the top, like and then it, it narrows like down towards very, very the bottom. Very, very tiny horns at the top. Oh, ears. Excuse yeah, me. we have little ears, as we call them. <laughs> At the top, they don't really do a whole lot aside from holding the piece of cane in place up there. So right now, the cane is kind of rectangular, so it goes straight down. And what we're trying to do is 
get it to go narrower and narrower as we go down. And we do that with a razor blade. Um, and we take a razor oh, blade just, and yeah. we just scrape down towards the camera. We scrape down the sides um, on both sides. And then once we have that done, so this is now then we have like, a shaped like piece of cane. What you're holding there, that shaped piece of cane, and it's like tapered near the mm-hmm. near the ends. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. tapered as it goes to the bottom of each of those little arms. Now, from here... Oh my gosh, I can't wait. I'm fascinated, are you kidding? This is such a long podcast. <laughs> from here, we have these, um, these little tubes called staples. Mine are all metal with little rubber O-rings, but I do also have, most of them Mm -hmm. are little metal tubes covered in cork. Doesn't really make a difference that they're different, but from here, (laughs) these also, these Mm -hmm. taper, they're thicker on the bottom and they are thinner at the top. And we tie on, Mm -hmm. we place the cane on the top of the staple and then we take thread and we tie the cane to the staple. And that is the point when you have right. a blank reed because it hasn't been scraped at all. Okay. And then and you the staples can be reused on then, the I'm staple. assuming, because they're Okay. The staples can be reused over and over and over. I like the metal ones because one, I feel like they resonate a little bit more. I don't know if that is something an okay. audience person would ever pick up on. It's kind of a personal feeling for me. The cork, the cork ones, I also, um, the cork again is organic. Um, so it can deteriorate more over time. So I feel like once I've invested in one of these metal staples, I mean, unless it gets smushed, um, it's mm-hmm, not going mm-hmm. anywhere and it should last a lifetime for me. So that that's kind of another reason why I prefer the metal ones. So at that point, we have the blank reed. I might scrape just a little bit off of the very tip to sort mm-hmm. of help the cane settle into this drastic new shape. But I would then let it dry out. Um, and so typically, I wouldn't come back to this reed to do any more until the next day. Potentially later in the day. I live in Bend, Oregon now, which gotcha. is the desert and pretty dry. So my reeds can dry out pretty quickly. So that's all the sort of like processing cane side of things. Now we get to actually making the reed. And for this, we have a whole slew of tools that we, we need to make this part work. I should say thread for oboists and the color of the thread for oboists is can be extremely important. Talk about that, please. There is there I wish I wish I had I wish this was on video. Um I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen spools of thread. 18 spools of thread Mm -hmm. that are all different colors. Um, I very much like the variegated colors, so multiple colors on a spool of thread. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people will just have a solid spool. But when I was in my undergrad learning to make reeds, you know, we would pass spools around, you know, and people could use, you know, different spools because... 
you know, this hot pink is making great reads right now. So then everybody in the studio would be playing on hot pink reads. Um, <laughs> and you really want to say that the color of thread makes no difference at all, but you would be wrong. Hmm. And I'm not the most superstitious type of person, but I will say my best reads come from this spool, which is called Fable. And it is made by Squirrely Stash, who I get most of my beautiful thread from. Nice. But it looks like a fairy tale. It does. There are a couple different shades of green. There are shades of purple and a little bit of pink and kind of everything in between. Some blues. It looks like a fairy tale. And it makes the best oboe reads. It makes horrible English horn reads, though. Whoa, okay, so you got to go different for the English horn reads. My, my English horn reads, English horn is just a big oboe, but we still have to make our reads, is this fiery one, um, also by Squirrely Stash, called You Shall Not Pass. <laughs> and this is... <laughs> That's amazing. Different shades, right? Different shades of maroon, red, orange, to yellow. Very, very um, different than the fable that you showed me. Yes, it's very much like... Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're the way you're talking sounds like like I remember I grew up in Colorado and there was a there were there was like a weekend with the Colorado Rockies where they mowed a different pattern into the baseball field and it was a circular pattern and it looked really cool and they lost all their games that weekend and so <laughs> they put like a ban on that mowing pattern because they're like well that must have been it. We can totally. never do that. And so it sounds very sounds very similar in the in the choosing of the thread and making sure. So when you make reads for yourself for performance, you're you're gonna go to the fable. Um if I have big performances coming up, yes. I okay. will go to the fable. Um and I have a couple reads tied on in fable right now because in a couple of weeks i do have an orchestral concert i do switch them up um because like i said what did i have like 17 or 18 spools of thread i will there are others that make good reads for sure i have a beautiful one called evergreen that i'm almost out of and it goes from like a sky blue into sort of like an evergreen um tree color and then there's actually brown in there so it's like you're going from the sky to the leaves or needles of the trees to the bark of the trees. And when you tie it on just right, it looks so amazing. I mean, um, that's, that's beautiful. And I, I love the names that Squirrelly said. They're like yes. nail polish names. They're like, she's, really? <laughs> she's brilliant. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I also, another really good one is Jack and Sally, which is from the nightmare before Christmas. Um, oh. And it's got some cool yellows and blues and, Kind of a pinkish purple red. It's just, yeah. No, she does a great job. Oh, another good one. This makes good English horn reads is Maleficent. Did I say that right? Mal Maleficent. Maleficent. I always yeah. switch. I always <laughs> from Disney. I always switch yeah. the letters, but this oh. is like a neon green, pink, purple. Ooh. So it just definitely looks like that. Really pops. Maleficent. Yeah, wow. that makes good English horn reads too. <laughs> But I do vary the I do vary the thread that I use um, like 
all of these colors that I have are variegated, so no two reads really look the same. But I will also use different colors. Um, it helps me sort of keep track of the reads that I'm making. Um, and it'll help me remember that, like, oh, this one's not great. It either needs more help or, you know, I just need to make this ready for a student. Um, so it helps me keep track it's kind of, of reads. It's kind of color-coded in a way, then. And yeah, it kind of helps with color coding. I don't have as many right now, but I usually have about 20 reads in process. Wow. Um, from blanks to I'm playing rehearsals and potentially performances on these. Wow. So do you have like a whole, is it, is, is you have a whole space? I know I've known other oboe players who have their like oboe, their, their read making space. Yes. So I have in my, studio um i've got about half of my table set up or my desk set up with my tools i have a little drying rack that the reeds can sit on so they dry really well i do have another countertop shelf um above some cabinets in this room and that's where i process all of my cane so i do the splitting and the guillotining and the pre-gouging and the gouging all standing over at that counter. And then when I'm making reads, I'm sitting at my desk. All right. So now you're at, where do we leave you off? We're, we're at the blanks so now, that have dried out. Yes. Okay. We have blanks and they have dried out. We will soak those up um, before scraping on them. So I might have scraped, like I said, maybe the top quarter or third of the read. Um, I do a lot of counting my scrapes. So those might have anywhere from 10 to 20 scrapes in the four quadrants. And the four quadrants are lengthwise each side of the reed. So you've got a left side and a right side, and then you turn the reed over onto the other blade, the other piece of wood, and you've got the left side and the right side. That's going to be important in a second. So um, I've at this point maybe scraped 10 to 20 scrapes on each of the four quadrants, only about a quarter to a third of the way down. So now I'm on day two of scraping the reed. Um, at this point, I'm going to kind of set in where the tip of my reed is going to be. I guess this is a good point to, um, to point out that a finished reed has a few different sections. It has the tip, which is the very top, and it's the thinnest part, and it is ridiculously thin. The next part below that is called the heart, which is the thickest part of the reed. The tip is usually about four to five, maybe six millimeters long. The heart is usually about five millimeters long. And then the rest of the reed down to the string is called the back. And in the back we have windows. So there's a slightly thinner part um, at the bottom of, or on the lower half of each quadrant under the heart. And then the quadrants are separated by a spine. So it's thickest down the middle in a vertical sort of fashion. So this is the point where I'm kind of setting up the tip and kind of I measure things out very carefully because I want reads to be as equal and balanced and consistent as possible because there's so many other factors that get in the way. So I'm measuring everything out, getting the tip, you know, where it needs to be. Um, at this point, I usually scrape channels. So I'm scraping in each quadrant um, the channels up. So you have the tip and basically a back at that point in it's usually around there that I'll keep thinning the tip and clipping, and I kind of want to get the reed to um, play a C if I can at that point, but it is very often a little more 
rattly and flatter. Is this a good time to do a crow? Because I have a read in that state. Okay, so it's a crow. You call it a crow, and we'll see why. You know, and I... I actually tried to look up why it's called a crow. I didn't look up, the, I didn't try very hard, but I did try. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I don't know why it's called a crow. But if you play on just the read of, uh, just a double read, so oboe, English horn, bassoon, um, we say we're crowing a read. Now it does sound kind of terrible. So maybe somebody at some point just thought it sounded, you know, like crows. Kind of reminds me of, um, like the Lost Boys and Peter Pan when they kind of crow to each other. Yeah. I so maybe there's just some, I don't, yeah, I don't know. And I also don't know how the word crow translates into other languages. Hmm. That would be really interesting to look up. Like, what do the French call it? So when you do say that you're crowing or le crow, maybe if it's le in crow. le crow, um, <laughs> You, you are just, you're just playing into the reed without the oboe attached to it. Exactly. Okay. So it is just the cane, which is tied onto the staple at this point. Okay. Now I do a couple different tests to see how the reed is developing at this point. I will crow the reed with basically my normal embouchure, which is sort of the shape of my lips holding onto the reed. And um, I will do that in in like a normal playing position, um, for me, well, it'll sound like this. Now, this is this is a read that is only on day two. Um, so it's going to be probably a little flat and it's going to be a little raucous. All right. <laughs> and those are both good things at this point. Okay. The normal state uh, or the normal embouchure playing position would sound like this. When I do that, I'm getting more of a sense of how the read is responding. Hmm. Like when I go to initially play and get a sound, um, I want that to be really quick and really easy. And so I do that. When we're going for the, the, the real crow, we put the reed all the way into our mouth so that our lips, our embouchure is all the way at the string. Um, so when we do that, we get this sort of sound. So, okay. <clears throat> That's very raucous, <laughs> very unrefined. But what I'm getting from that is I'm getting a lot of vibration, which I want, because then I can refine that into the vibrations that I want. It is still, well, if you can find any pitch in there at all, it's way flatter than we want it to end up. Um, but the read is also still longer at this point. So we're going to be making it shorter. And as we make it shorter, it's going to go higher. It's kind of like a flute and a piccolo. A piccolo is really high because it's a much shorter Got instrument. It. Okay. At this point, um, I would set this read down to dry again. I did that. This read is actually from a few days ago, last week. So I will be taking this to the next step today. But I kind of like that vibrating, um, raucous sound for the reed to have. I don't want it to be too flat at this point because we do want the reed to be at a C. And so we don't want it to get too far away from that. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the next step for this reed would be continuing to refine the tip. I would say the top of the heart is kind of like a rooftop. It can be hard to see. You usually use light behind it to get that sort of idea, but it's hmm. got kind of a rooftop or a mountaintop peak. 
and then it gets thinner as it goes out towards the edges. <clears throat> so I'm going to continue trying to make that happen. That's going to require every time I scrape on the reed, the reed is going to go flatter. So we often scrape a little and then clip and then scrape a little and clip. And that's trying to get us up to that C. Okay, because the scraping makes row. it go flatter, but then when you clip, it makes it shorter, which makes it so you're balancing that the whole time. Yeah, so Ugh. it's all, I mean, it's all a balancing act. Wow. Um, so the, the next stages are refining the tip, and then I put in those windows, and then that way we have the tip, the heart, and then the windows. And I do have micrometers that will let me measure every aspect of every part of those. I don't use that unless I'm stuck. I really kind of focus on what the crow sounds like and what I can see. But if I have a piece of cane that um, I'm not willing to let go of, um, I will sort of measure each quadrant and see if I just have something that is unbalanced and we'll try to fix it from there. But at that point, I should have a read that I could practice on or maybe even play a rehearsal on. I probably wouldn't have a read quite ready for a performance, but the crow I'm aiming for should be around a C. Mine have a tendency to be just a little bit flatter than that, but around a C. And the ideal goal is to have octave Cs. So you'll get sort of the initial um, C, and then sometimes we really want to get the 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 C below the octave below that. Hmm. So we're going for this sort of sound. So this is my first little peep with my normal embouchure playing position. That feels really good. Um, and then when I go to do the full crow, you should be able to hear both octaves in that crow. The high and the low. Okay. The high and the low. So that's always what we're striving for. We are trying to make um, a reed that plays a C because our instrument is a C instrument. And when we take that finished reed, oh, let me do this first. So that unfinished reed, which crowed like this, is going to sound like this on the oboe. So it's super out of tune and flat and not pretty, <laughs> but it's very easy and it vibrates really well. So for me, this is in a really good place to start doing all of the refinement process. Mm. That other read, which had this crow, will sound like this in the oboe, hopefully. So much smoother too like yeah and it's got it it responds really easily but it also has enough resistance to where um, i feel in control of how the read is so it's very stable the pitch isn't going to go all over the place on me um the sound is it's just going to be there i can just play on that read and it's got a nice I think it has a nice sound. It's got a nice resonance. Um, I always try to go for a velvety sound or feel in the oboe. Um, I know that's not always going to project out, but I feel like if I can get that um, where I am, I'm going to have more luck having that um, resonate out into the audience. Nice. Okay. 
So. And then that read will last about five minutes and I'll have to make another one. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And then you start that whole process over again. Okay. So at this point, I, I should have kept a tally sheet. You talked about, so you have to get the cane. You have to get, you have to get the cane. You have your gouging machine. You've got a splitter. A, oh, that's right. Splitter, gouging machine. Then um, a pre-gouger. A pre-gouger. A pre-gouger. Uh, a gouging machine. Mm-hmm. The, the, sh- now, the tip shaper. Yeah, the tip shaper and its handle. The handle's separate? The, um, the handle is separate because you can have all different kinds of shaper tips. Wow. I have, I think I have three oboe shaper tips and two, no, I have three English horn shaper tips as well. I pretty much only use one of each though. I should probably sell the other ones because those shaper tips cost hundreds of dollars. (laughs) Wow. Okay. And then, and then you have a variety of, of knives or do you just have kind of one? I do. I guess I didn't talk about the actual reed making tools much. So I have what's called a mandrel and this has got a little handle and then I don't know. It's like this kind of tube part. Um, It looks like a thermometer on the screen. Like it looks really. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it's what you do here is you put the reed on the mandrel to hold it for Ah. stability when you're scraping on a reed. And also for me, I've got really large hands and reeds are really small. So it makes it easier to hold the reed. These can cost anywhere from like 40 to $60 or more. Um, But if you get one, hopefully this is the one you have. I've probably had this for 20 years. I do typically have two knives and... Mm. um, Really flat, uh, like rectangular looking blades. Yeah. They're called double hollow ground because um, you kind of sharpen both sides of them. Ah, Um, So you sharpen them in a certain direction, whether you're left-handed or right-handed. We do also have beveled knives, which are flat on the front and then have that on that side on the back. Have an angle. Okay. Um, Yeah. So there's a few different kinds of knives that you can use. What I typically do is I go in a rotation. So I get a knife. I have to go through the whole process of sharpening it, which is, that's another, I have, stones in different burnishing rods to keep my knives sharp. Keep the knife sharp. Gosh, yeah. Okay. So when I get a new knife, I will I will get it all sharpened and set up and that will become my finishing knife. So it's really sharp and really new and that will help me do the really fine refinements, especially in the tip. Once that knife starts getting a little bit older, and that can be anywhere from six to 12 months or so, I'll get a new knife that will become the finishing knife. And I will use that old finishing knife as the first knife I use when I start scraping on reeds. So it doesn't matter quite as much. It doesn't have to get quite as sharp. It doesn't have to do you know the exact refinement work so it gets me a little bit more life out of my knives i think my knives cost about 60 dollars each but i have seen knives up to like a hundred dollars and um mine are very just kind of middle of the road and i probably get approximately one new knife a year i have a little cutting block that i use um my razor blades with and i use very specific gem brand razor blades and we use that to sort of clip open the tip and then to clip the tip shorter every time that we need to. I have a, um, I also have a little, this is 
very inconsequential as far as price goes, but I always have a see-through ruler, just a six-inch ruler, mm -hmm. so I can keep all the measurements straight on oh, okay. um, what's happening. And then I have all of that in a little leather case, mm -hmm. so I can easily take that with me to rehearsals because reeds are finicky. <laughs> a reed might change from my house to the concert hall, depending on how warm or cold or, you know, the humidity level or the elevation level, if you live higher than where you're playing or lower than where you're playing. So you've got that, you've got that like go bag in case in rehearsal you need to make like a last minute adjustment. Exactly. Wow. Okay. I always have my, I always have these knives and the mandrel um, with me. The, the last thing that we kind of have um, is called a plaque. Again, I don't really know where this comes from, but it's a little piece. It's slightly oval-shaped. Um, mm -hmm. It's very oval-shaped. Mine is a little pointy on each end. Yeah, I was going to say, it looks um, like a tiny kayak. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it does. <laughs> um, some are more rounded than others. The kind I get are also contoured, so they're not completely flat. Some oh, people okay. use um, completely flat plaques. They are made out of typically either this, a blue steel, so you can kind of see where I've scraped. I can't do this. You can see where I've scraped where it's lighter. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and, um, and then some people use um, wooden plaques. I've tried those. I don't like those as much. Um, typically, they say they dull your knives more slowly um, okay. as you're scraping over those. I haven't noticed a difference. I think those are... Wait, sorry, what does the plaque the, do? Oh, thank you. Um, the plaques, once you've clipped the reed open, so you've got two pieces of wood tied together, you slip the plaque in between those blades, so in the top of the reed, so that you've got um, the background to be able to scrape each quadrant of the reed without affecting what's behind it. So it's like, okay. you know, stability in that sense. So there are some some reeds that like one side of it, like the side that's on the tongue side or whatever will be slightly different than the other side. Yeah. It might just need a little bit of an adjustment. Cause I mean, we're hand scraping organic material. So again, you know, you, you try to do the same thing every single time, but every single piece of cane is a little bit different than the previous. Holy cow. And then just like human error, you know, yeah. like I measure, you know, I measure where my tip is going to be, but you know, there might be a day where, I haven't had coffee yet and I've scraped too far down on one side and then I have to make adjustments to all the other quadrants to try to get those all to match and to be, you know, as balanced and even as possible. Wow. Okay. So as far as the financial commitment, like the, the investment in tools sounds like hundreds of dollars. Um, well, my gouging machine, if I were to buy my gouging machine now, um, I think I got mine a long time ago. Um, yeah. I think they're like around $1,500 now for a gouging machine. Wow. Um, I did get mine in like 2000 when I was still a doctoral student. My pre-gouger, um, I think even those are getting close to $1,000 um, for a pre-gouger. The splitter is not that expensive, maybe $50, $75. And these tools do need, the splitter doesn't need any maintenance. Hopefully you get one and then you have that one for a really long time. Mm -hmm. The pre-gouger, you have to swap out the blades every now and then. Um, that's not terribly expensive. I think I've only done it a few times in like 
20 years. But my gouging machine, I usually send in every year or two for maintenance. They can um, sharpen the blade and just kind of clean everything up and uh, sometimes replace the blade if it's just, you know, beyond sharpening. So there is that regular maintenance there. All of the staples, the little part that I tie the reed onto, my metal ones are a little more expensive. I think they're five or six dollars each. And then the cork ones are sometimes a little bit cheaper. You can sometimes find those for around three dollars each. Okay. But I always try to get those back from students. Um, so they don't just collect, you know, a pile of staples and then throw them away since they can be reused. Right. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And then all of our thread. Oh, and then all the thread. Oh my gosh. How much is this full of thread? <laughs> Um, I think they're around seven or eight dollars, but you can make a lot of reads on the spool of thread. Um, but you know, you know, thread can be fleeting. So (laughs) if the color does nothing for you anymore, then you must buy a new one. Obviously. (laughs) Uh, Yes. As we've learned. Um, so that kind of gives more of an idea of a financial commitment. What about a time commitment? You said you're like, you've always got reads in process. I always have reads in process. I... I don't play quite as much now that I'm in Bend as I did when I was in the Bay Area freelancing. Mm -hmm. I try to batch process the cane. So taking it from tube to gouged, like I said, I'll usually do around 10 tubes at a time, which will hopefully get me close to 30 pieces of cane. So I'm not having to do that constantly. But I would say from when I tie the reed on to have a reed that works, I'm not the fastest street maker because I'm trying to be careful. Um, but like, I would say if I, if I did that all at once, it could take me anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to finish a read from when it's tied on. I do know people that can crank that out much more quickly. Hmm. One of my teachers would always talk about making a 10 minute oboe read. And, you know, having the skill to be able to crank something out in 10 minutes in case you're ever in an emergency. I was never able to really make a 10 minute read work that well. <laughs> I could, I could, I could crank something out that's going to play, but I'm not going to be happy with. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is. And then how many, yeah. so you say you have like, I think you said like 20 reads that are in process at home. How many reads do you carry with you to rehearsals? Typically... So this is on the light end right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I have, I probably have seven reads that I will take to my rehearsal tonight. Some of them are going to get a little bit more love today. So I might have, you know, more realistic options. Right. Um, but I probably have anywhere from five to 10 reads um, as possibilities going into any rehearsal. For a performance, I usually at that point have it narrowed down to one or two. <laughs> but yeah, rehearsals, you know, I'm a little bit less concerned with its, you know, final product. It just has to play and it has to play in tune. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Especially um, since we tune the whole orchestra. <laughs> there is that too. Like it's got to <laughs> make sure that it's in tune. Isn't that like... I'm not sure if this is actual historical fact or just like a joke that that's why the oboe tunes is because you can't actually tune an oboe. There's more like there's, there's well, honestly, right. That's, that's, that's interesting. I've, that's another one that I'm not really sure the historical precedence behind oboes tuning the orchestra, but um, when the oboe is conical. So from the, the tip of the staple so that metal part the metal part of the reed all the way down to the bell 
the oboe is conical, so it gets gradually bigger. And because of that, if we were to pull out the reed a little bit, which like on a flute, you can pull out the head joint to make it flatter because you're making the flute longer or bigger. And then you can also push the head joint in to be sharper. For the oboe, all of our joints where the oboe pieces come together, they're all pushed completely together. Um, so they're the only flexibility that we have is going to be with our embouchure and maybe air speed. So I still have a decent amount of room for that. Um, if I'm playing, if I'm playing, say the tuning A for an orchestra, <clears throat> my elbow is a little cold, so this might be a little flat. But if I play the tuning A, I have this much flexibility in in pitch just with my embouchure and airspeed. So how much of the reed I have in my mouth versus not out and how fast or slow my airspeed is going. So it's a pretty so wide range. It's not a, I was going to say, yeah, it's not a, it's not a lot, but it's also not a little. Like yeah. there is flexibility. And that was trying to keep it within somewhat um appropriate sound <laughs> right um, yeah parameters sure um <laughs> there there are actually techniques in trying to make oboe sound like middle eastern double reed instruments where you do put your lips all the way into the string And you have a lot less control over the pitch and the sound, but it has the quality of some of the more Middle Eastern double reed instruments. We would never play classically that way, though. Sure. <laughs> sure. That makes sense. Wow. This, I have so, already learned, learned so much. Yay. <laughs> I'm baffled that you do this all the time. All the time. There are times I'm furiously making reads because they just aren't turning out the way that I want for a performance. Um, and so I will spend sometimes more time working on reads and getting a read to sound the way that I want than I am actually practicing for that concert, which becomes a little bit easier the older you get because I've played a lot of the music before that I might have to play in a concert. And hopefully I've done enough preparation you know, ahead of time. Um, but yeah, those are, those are really frustrating um, times when you are trying to crank out reads and they're just not, they're not ending up the way that you want them to. It's very funny how much self-worth is tied into this tiny piece of wood and metal. I have one final question and that is what is, because do you, do you prefer to do this in silence or with background noise or what do you do while you're, Ah, I think people have different, um, I'm sure people have different sort of approaches to this. And when you're in this stage where you're trying to really tune and refine, I'm probably going to do that a little bit more in silence. But Netflix is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will, I will... I will have Netflix playing usually shows that you don't have to pay a lot of attention to. Or for me, my favorite is the, is the BBC's Merlin, which I've now seen like four times. And so I kind of know what's going on and I can just sort of glance up at my computer screen. Yep. Um, 
but uh, I will have, you know, a show, not a whole lot of consequence playing. Um, a lot of times, too, though, I'll do my, you know, quote-unquote score study, where if I have a concert coming up, I will listen to different recordings on YouTube or, you know, whatever music app you use, um, and just really kind of have the music that I'm performing playing so I can, you know, I'm I'm hearing it and listening to it and can kind of zone in and out of when I need to pay more attention to it. So me, noise. I need something going on. <laughs> Otherwise, it's very quiet. And that's our show for today. My deepest thanks to Ryan Zwallen for taking us on quite a journey through the whole process. The theme music for this show is composed by Not Dead composer Thomas Barber. Check out more from him at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Got a question, comment, or just want to reach out to remind me of my eternal nerdiness? Shoot an email to keepclassicalweird at gmail.com. I read and respond to every single one of them. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and stay weird. Stay weird.